0: Let me just give you a a quick sidelight to what I want to talk about today. For about five weeks, I've been thinking about the generous person. And uh, I was asked to speak at a church in High Point, and I spoke on discovering generosity. And I based it upon that scripture where Paul said, Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And basically what I was saying to that congregation was, you will never understand the blessing of giving until you start giving. You will never become a generous person. You won't wake up one day and say, you know, I've been a selfish person. I'm not going to be this way anymore. You will start giving, and then you will begin to discover that wonderful, glorious blessing of being a give first rather than a get first type person. And so I shared that message, and then they asked me to come back in two weeks. And uh, I, I realized that I had not been finished with what I was trying to share with them. So I came up with a second message, and so this is the second time I've preached this second message. And I entitled it, A Picture of a Generous Person. A Portrait. And uh, you don't have to look very far in the Bible until you'll find that probably Jesus was the ultimate picture. But there are other people that are pictures. But let let me just say this to you. Today, you and I, we are either a generous person Or we are a selfish person. Or, as I've noticed in 45 years of ministry, most people are somewhere in between. But sometimes you find these people that are just generous first people. And you find these people who are selfish first people. So somewhere on that scale, every one of us in this room fit. Perhaps you're a generous person one who is constantly trying to build up people, trying to uh, encourage others and help out others, who is always noticing when there is a need around them and the first to give and the first to reach out. Or you're a selfish, self-absorbed, inward-looking uncharitable, greedy person who is always looking out for number one. Now, let me say, I believe that not everybody is over here and not everybody is over here. Most people fit somewhere in between. But uh, what is it to be a generous person? What does a generous person really look like? It's interesting that uh, in the Bible, the word encouragement is used over one in the New Testament over 100 times. Think about it. People were encouraging each other. That was was what they were called to do not discourage, not tear down, but build up each other. And the scriptures are full of that. And actually, there are 55. One another versus. We're to love one another. We're to build up one another. We're to care for one another. The whole tenor of being a Christian is being a giving person, giving love and help encouragement and blessing to others. Now, the patron saint of encouragement in the Bible is a man by the name of Joseph. Better known as Barnabas. Joseph, and so I want to look at him this morning and let him be our portrait of what it is to really be a giving, generous person. Number one, and it's in your outline, Barnabas was a giving person. In Acts chapter 4, verse 36 and 37, we read these words, and I didn't read the scripture ahead of time because I knew I'd be reading the scripture as we go through. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, listen to this, he sold a field he owned and brought the money and laid it at the foot of Jesus' feet. Now, I would start by saying, Joseph was a giving person. He gave what he had. But I want to I say this this morning so you don't get hung up on money. You can be a giving person when you give friendship. A lot of people have no friends at all. And I'm not going to talk about all those. You can give prayers. I hate it when people say, well, I don't have anything to give, but I can pray for you. Listen, when you pray for you, for them, you're giving the greatest gift that you could ever give. When you give the fruit of the Spirit. There are people who need love. They need self, to be, see someone with self-control, not to respond to them in anger and hostile. You can give the fruit of the Spirit. You can give appreciation You can give compliments. You can give encouragement. When I was the the, uh, pastor of Christian education in our largest Wesleyan church many years ago, for a Sunday school rally, we invited Miss America to come. She was just a lovely Christian woman. She shared her, her testimony and to all the people during Sunday school. And then she was there and she was just a lovely person. She said to me she said the reason that I am Miss America is because when I grew up my father owned a store out in the country and ever I would always go to the store and help my dad and there was one man who walked into the store and he would always say how is my little Miss America She said, he said it so many times that I began to believe I could become Miss America. He said it so many times that I visualized and saw myself someday as being Miss America. And she was. And she was a wonderful, had a glorious and tremendous testimony. But Barnabas was a giver. And so it says he came and he gave some property that he owned and he laid it at the apostles feet. You know it's you never know what's going to happen when you give. <laughs> the interesting thing about this is Barnabas is the first recorded giver in the New Testament. He had no idea when he came to Jerusalem and sold some land that he owned, and laid it at the foot of the apostles, that he would go down in history as the first recorded New Testament giver. Now, I'm sure there were others before him, but he was the first recorded one. Now, it's interesting as you as you look at him. He was a, is Israelite, but he was a Hellenist. He was not born in Israel. Therefore, he didn't have some of the opportunities that other people had. But he knew what he could do. And he gave what he could give. And nothing is more encouraging than when generous people catch a vision from the top, from God, and begin to give. It's interesting, people who give even though they have less money than people who have much, worry less about what they have than people who have more money and give it. It just becomes a natural outcrop of who they are and their life. And when you start giving, you never know what's going to happen. You put yourself in the hands of a God who is much bigger than you. Here it is. Barnabas saw the need. Barnabas gave as if it was infectious. Look at it again. His name was Joseph, but the apostles called him the son of encouragement. He was a giver and he was an encourager. When I was pastoring in Shady Grove, we always had a friend day. A lot of, most people didn't participate participate in it. I, I, I hope they had friends, but they didn't have that many friends. But the main reason was to give people an opportunity. It's easier, hey, we're having friend day at church. You're my friend. Would you come? Than to just say, hey, would you go to church with me sometime? So we had friend day. And also, it gave me a chance once or twice a year to remind my congregation that 98% of the people who are going to be here on Sunday, this, who are here this Sunday morning came because somebody invited them. But on this particular friend, uh, friend day, there were only nine, uh, of a congregation of 500, there were only nine first-time guests. But what happened that day tells the story. One lady who came that Sunday, who had never been in a church in her whole life, when she passed away, she left our church the largest offering that it had ever received, enough money to pay off the debt of a building of a of, of past building program. You say, Are you glad you had Friend Day? I don't think Friend Day had anything to do with it. What People in our congregation didn't know that I knew that there was a lady in our church. They were wealthy. In fact, I, I believe Jim and Fran were millionaires. But somehow, Fran had caught a vision of helping this former doctor and her two sons who were engineers, two, her two brothers who were engineers. And for five years, every day... <coughs> Fran stopped by to see Helen, to see how she was doing. She took her to the doctor. She helped her get food. She, she helped her find a place to stay when she was too old to live at home. She, she literally gave her life. And I, I remember one time I said to Fran, I said, Fran, are you guys ever going to take a vacation? She says, no, not as long as Helen is alive. She had literally given herself to Helen to be her source of help and encouragement and blessing until Helen finally died. And when Helen died and was buried, Fran and her husband and Muriel and I were the only people to come to the funeral. And we sat there and shared stories about what a blessing that Helen was to all of us. You see, when you start giving, and you begin to catch a vision for how you can help people and help others, there's no stopping point. And God uses it in a mighty and a blessed way. Now, let me move on. I, I, I'll kind of cut some of my stories out. But, but in thinking, I, I think there's no theme in my life, and my wife could ask my wife what she thinks, than generosity. That's what I'm all about. There's nothing that I think is more wonderful no wonder Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Because the more he gave, the more blessed he realized he, he even was. And the more blessed we would be. Well, let me move on quickly. Number two, Barnabas was a man of grace. In Acts chapter 4, he disappears. You don't hear anything about him until Acts chapter 9. And in Acts chapter 9, it says, there, there was a man named Saul who terrorized the church. He has threatened to murder every Christian. And he gave the go-ahead to Stephen's death. Acts chapter 9 talks about a problem. He come, and so uh, Paul, Saul at the time, comes back to Jerusalem. And, bar, and, and the disciples say, we don't want anything to do with this man. Wow, when he was in Tarsus, they had a mighty revival. and and, and God used him in a mighty way, and people came to Christ, and the church flourished, and the church prospered. Now he's coming to Jerusalem, and the apostles, these, quote, godliest men in the church, say, we don't want anything to do with him. We're not looking it over. We're not talking about it. Get rid of him. We don't want Paul in our church. But one man, Barnabas, Took time and looked at all the facts. And when he came up with the facts, he came back to the apostles and said, I've checked him out. You don't have to fear this man. God has done things in his life that you that, that you you don't even know about. And we need to accept him and we need to let him in, and we need to let him be part of our church. And the Bible says, so Saul stayed with them and moved freely in Jerusalem speaking boldly in the name of the Lord and i want to ask you a question what would have happened to saul if he had not known barnabas could and i and i i know god had a plan for the church and and and, and, and this is the way it needed to happen but had Barnabas not been there, what would have happened to Paul? The story ends in Acts chapter three, 9, verse 31. Listen to this this man that was ostracized, this man that was hated, this man who nobody wanted anything to do with, this man took over as a pastor in, in the church. And the church throughout Judea, Judea and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and it grew in numbers in the living Lord. And then people begin to say, this is the kind of church I want to be part of. Not because they had godly apostles, but because they had a love and accepting spirit. And they knew that that's what they needed. Third thing I want to notice is Barnabas was a servant. Acts chapter 11 and verse 13. Antioch, see, Paul goes to Tarsus and there's a revival. Paul goes to Jerusalem and there's prosperous church. Now, in Acts chapter 11, he goes to Antioch. Now, Antioch was a place where things were happening. In in chapter 11, verse 26, it says, The they were first called Christians at Antioch. And things were happening and things were going on and and it was generous people began to see things that no one else could see. And they began to see Barnabas. Now here's where something happens that just blows me away. Barnabas and Paul have an incredible ministry in Antioch. For one year, they teach numbers of people. If you go into Acts chapter 11, verse 22, it says, Barnabas and Paul. In Acts chapter 11, verse 26, it says, Barnabas and Paul. In Acts chapter 13, verse 2, it says, Barnabas and Paul. Now, amazingly, in chapter 13, verse 42, something happens. Now, it says, Paul and Barnabas. In verse 34, it says, Paul and Barnabas. In verse 46, it says, Paul and Barnabas. In verse 50, it says, Paul and Barnabas. In chapter 14, verse 1 and 23, it says, Paul and Barnabas. In chapter 15, verse 2, 22 and 25, it says, Paul and Barnabas. Their names are switched in the order of importance, in the order of of, of ministry. And no longer is, is the leader of the church. And we suppose that Barnabas, up until that point, was a real leader, if not the leader. Now the leader is Paul. Now, from a human standpoint, that could have been terrible, he could have gotten jealous. He could have longed for Paul's status. Instead, this godly man of encouragement and giving and grace rejoiced in the development of someone else and was rejoicing that he could have been part of what was becoming a reality. As Paul became visible, no one rejoiced. More than Barnabas. The fourth thing I want to notice is Barnabas was completely committed to people. And I got a neat little illustration there, but I'm going to skip over it. What time is it? Ooh, yeah, I'll skip over it. In Acts chapter 15 gives us the story of John Mark. It's a it's a very interesting story. Uh, John Mark is mentioned several times in the Bible. Uh, In Mark chapter 14, verse 51, we believe he is the guy who was so terrified at the crucifixion that he threw off his clothes and ran through the street of Jerusalem. Now that's, that's only speculation on my part. I don't know who that guy was. But he was called... But the story is much deeper than that. In Acts chapter 15 in Perga, Mark deserts Paul and Barnabas. Perhaps he was afraid. He was young. People make mistakes, you know. People do things that without thinking. They, they Nobody's perfect. But Barnabas, when they began to decide on their next missionary journey, their second missionary journey, Barnabas, wanted to take John Mark. But Paul disagreed. And in the scripture it says, they didn't just disagree, they strongly disagreed, and argued and thought over it. Now here is the two leaders of the church, disagreeing on something. Something that could split the church apart. But they disagreed. And so... Paul recruits Silas and Barnabas and Mark go their way and Paul and Silas go their way. Interesting, Barnabas is never heard again after, this, after Acts chapter 15. But Mark and Barnabas, we don't even know where they go. We assume they went somewhere to minister. They weren't going to sit around on their laurels. And so we see this this story begin to unfold. But what an amazing contrast, Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas saw something in Mark and believed in him and was willing to help him and encourage him and stand behind him. Paul said, we're not taking him. He's no good. He'll never make it. And so they separated and went their way. And I read all that, say all that to say this. In the last letter that Paul ever wrote, 2 Timothy, he writes this, only Luke is with me. You wonder where Luke got all his, a lot of his teachings and so on through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, traveling with Paul and the disciples. Only Luke is with me. And then in the next Part of that verse he says, bring John Mark with you for he is helpful in the ministry. I am so thankful that Paul was godly enough man that he could admit that he made a mistake and that he's not always right. And And he could say, John Mark is profitable. For me, the guy who argued against him, the guy who said, Get out of here, you're not going with us, now says, Before he dies, the person I want with me is John Mark. Tells me a lot about the Apostle Paul, but it also tells me a lot about Barnabas. Now, I've got some more here, but I'm going to just bring this to a conclusion. Two questions. Who are the people who believed in you when others wanted to write you off? If you can honestly say to me on the way out, I've lived my whole life and I never had anybody like that in my life, then I'll give you a hug and pat you on the back and give you 20 bucks and buy your lunch. All of us at some time or another have had somebody come along and affect us. In the process of the last five weeks working on these messages, Muriel and I have talked about this a lot, and I've said, "Muriel, who were your Barnabases?" And so I uh, listed my Barnabases. Now, my Barnabases are a whole lot more than Muriel's because I needed help a whole lot more than she has. Now, I'm not making fun of that. I'm not joking about it. I, I, I thank the Lord for my Barnabases. Let me just tell you about two, John Basham. He was my foster father, pastor of my church. And when I was 16 and had no place to live and did not know what was gonna happen to me in my life, things were desperate. John Basham came to see me and he said, would you like to come live with us? Changed my life completely set me in a totally different direction. And he became my Barnabas. He became my mentor. He became the person. You know, he could have said, well, I don't know, boy. This guy's 16. He's got not had a good record. He, he's been wild and crazy. And I had been. Adventure. But that's before I found Jesus. And so he could have said all of that. But they took me in. The... Other person that really stands out to me is Bob Zuhl. Now, it's interesting. I never thought about that until this morning. When Bob Zuhl was an 18-year-old college student at Indiana Wesleyan University, he became very discouraged, didn't feel that he could go into the ministry, didn't feel that he, he, he was cut out for it and decided to go home. And he told—he happened to be in the same university where John Basham was. He went and told John Basham his story. And here's what Mr. Basham says. Well, you know, I travel every week in a gospel team. Why don't you travel with me for a few months? And I'll let you speak occasionally, and you can play your trumpet. And, and let's just see what happens. And because John Basham not just believed in me, but believed in Bob Zuhl, Bob Zuhl became arguably the most outstanding pastor in our denomination. Definitely the most loving, caring that we've ever had. But my story goes back to 93. We had pastored a church, built a, built a church, a, a thousand-seat church. Church was going great, and I was just burnt out. I had nothing left. And I decided to leave against people who told me I shouldn't. And I took another church, and I went to this church, and, and one of the first things I begin to hear is some of the members of the church bragging how after three years they finally got rid of the last pastor. And it wasn't too long till I realized that that's what they like to do. And they began to work on me. I won't tell you all the things that I went through. But by, but by eight months, I decided that I don't know that I'm cut out for the ministry. I don't know if I can take it. I don't know if it's worth it. And Meryl and I began to ask ourselves, what should we be doing with our life? All the way, all the time, knowing the night that God called me. And I had a call on my life, but I didn't know if I could take it. A friend of mine had wrote a book on why pastors leave the ministry and the number one reason was it's just too hard. It's too discouraging. Another that time I'd read George Barnabas' book about the 9,000 people who had left the ministry that year. And I, here I was in this quandary to stay or to go. One night I was praying and at 3 a.m. in the morning, God said, when you get up in the and it was just as audible, it wasn't audible, but it was just as real as I'm speaking to you. God said, In the morning, when you get up, I want you to call. Who? Bob Zule. The man that I would never even thought about it until this morning, that probably wouldn't be in the ministry if it had not been for John Basham. That morning I called him and I said, Bob, I said, I'm very discouraged. I don't know. I don't know what to do. He said, "Well, why don't you come work for me?" I said, "Well, we've always talked about it." And I said, "Yeah. I'll do it." And uh he said, "Come over tomorrow, meet with my executive committee. They we could at, at Kellogg Center. We went, we sat down with the five of us, Miro and I, and we talked to them and they accepted us. They accepted us. And they Make a long story short, we ended up going resigning the well, I'd already resigned the church because I just couldn't I couldn't I was ready to resign the ministry. I just but Bob Zule took me in and I went to his church and for two years worked with him as minister of evangelism. I had no idea. I had no idea when I left the church where I was totally burnt out to a church that they were trying to burn me out that my greatest years of ministry would be ahead. That two years I was there, 581 people accepted Christ and joined the church. It was just the most amazing thing. And then they were so excited to have me that they asked me if I would stay as pastor. I said, no, God's called me into evangelism. And so I took another church in New York and then I took another church later. And then I took my final... I went into evangelism, traveled all over the world, where thousands, I saw, I had the opportunity to preach to 10,000 people on national TV in Kenya. God was using me now. And then my last church, which was the uh, largest church that I started started from scratch and built it up. Now, I'm, not, I'm only saying that to say, if it had not been for Bob Zool, coming along beside me. None of that would have happened in my life. I called Bob today, this week, and to talk to him. He's 93 years old now, and he didn't really want to talk to me. He wanted to tell me about his girlfriend. <laughs> and uh, it, it was fascinating to me. You know, uh, we knew Marge. Uh, as well as we knew anybody, his first wife, and he's been, she's been dead for five years. And now he's going with this 88-year-old eight woman whose husband used to be uh, the vice president of Chrysler. And uh, he, says, he says, we go out and we, we always split meals. I said, yeah, you probably can't afford it. But anyway, to say all that, to say this, had it not been for Bob Zule who came beside me and believed in me and encouraged me. I wouldn't be for sure speaking here today and I would have missed the best years of my ministry. All of us need, all of us need a Barnabas. And the last question is, who are the people that you know who desperately need a Barnabas? Need someone to come alongside and say, we love you. We're going to help you. We're going to be there for you. I am so thankful for those people in my life. I wish I could talk about some of the others, but I'll leave it at this. Number one, take time to thank God for those who were there for you. And ask God to show you the people that you can be there for. I have a 90-year-old former evangelist. He preached 700 crusades all over the world. And God has put him into Muriel and I's life to be there for him. 20 straight days, I was with him in August taking him to the doctor, going to him, taking him out to eat, taking him to the the hospital to see his wife who had been there. there. There are people everywhere who just need somebody to love them. Father, thank you for those people in our lives. May we never forget them. May we write them. May we remind them that if it had not been for you, I would not be the person in Christ that I am today. And I pray that you would just help us to remember those. And then I pray that you would help us to realize it's more blessed to give than receive. And help us to find people that need what we can offer them and need what we can give them. In Christ's name, amen.